Conversations launched in October 2020 with a two-part interview with Nikki Giovanni, who came to Emory's campus just before the pandemic as a featured poet for our annual Twelfth Night Revel in Raymond Donowski's Poetry Library Reading Series. We're excited to present our second interview with a Revel poet, this year's 2022 featured poet, Marilyn Chen, who is visiting campus in March to give a poetry reading and engage in conversation with students. Our co-producer and Rose Library's literary and poetry collections librarian, Nick Twimlow, interviewed Ms. Chen in anticipation of her live reading at the Schwartz Center on Emory's campus, set for Sunday, March 13th at 3 p.m. Limited in-person tickets are available, and the event will stream for free. I'm your host, Lily Turow, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries. Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library, and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations. Hello and welcome to Community Conversations. My name is Nick Twemlow. I am the Literary and Poetry Collections Librarian at Rose Library. And with my colleague, Lolita Rowe, I produce Community Conversations. We are super excited today to be talking with writer Marilyn Chin, who joins us from her home in San Diego. Marilyn will be our special guest on Sunday, March 13th, as she will come to Emory's campus to give a reading of her poems and talk with students as part of Rose Library's Raymond Donowski Poetry Library Reading Series. The event is free and will be streamed with limited in-person seating available to Emory students, staff, and faculty, and members of the Atlanta community. For more information, please send a query email to rose.library at emory.edu. I will keep my introduction of Marilyn short so we can jump into the conversation, but you can learn more about her and her accomplishments by checking out the episode notes. Marilyn Chin is the author of the poetry collections Hard Love Province, Rhapsody in Plain Yellow, Dwarf Bamboo, The Phoenix Gone, The Terrace Empty, and most recently, A Portrait of the Self as Nation, New and Selected Poems, which was published by Norton in 2018. Her book of wild girl fiction is called Revenge of the Mooncake Vixen. She has won numerous awards, including the Ruth Lilly Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry from the Poetry Foundation and the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. She was born in Hong Kong and raised in Portland, Oregon. She received a BA from the University of Massachusetts Amherst in Chinese literature and an MFA from the University of Iowa, which we might circle back to since I am also an alum of that program, as we've discussed. Presently, Chin is Professor Emerita at San Diego State University and serves as a Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. Welcome, Marilyn. Hi, Nick, and thank you um, to the Emory Libraries and the Raymond Danowski Poetry Series for loving poets and writers. Thank you. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I'm going to focus the conversation initially and probably overall around the idea of archives, since that's what this show is about. And while that is the case, I do want to discuss how you think through the various ways we can imagine what an archive is or can be. But first, I watched a wonderful interview with you online in which you read your poem, Tiananmen, The Aftermath, and then talked about it in the context of political and love poems. You said that it had been written as a love poem that turned into a political poem, and you noted that this happens a lot 
in your other poems. I wonder if you have another poem that exemplifies this transformation, and if so, could you read it, and then maybe can we talk about it? So I'll read Sonnet Nice after Su Dong Po. The blacker the black coffee, the more I want two cups. All I get in Beijing is shit Nescafe, sugary muck. Beauty, ugliness, self-same skyline, obscured by smog. Imperial killjoy, drunk on his back, can't get it up. I love socialist architecture, flabby husbands, alcoholic hard bucks. The sadder they get, the more I love them. I can't get enough. You could be a rich corpse or a poor corpse. Snuff all your cavities with jade and river pearls, powdery gold snuff. The robbers will pluck them like fragrant florets. Silly boy, eyes closed, puckered, you wait for love. Gripe about how life has cheated you of fame, of riches. End of a violent century, you are nostalgic for blood. My dear, we are staring at the void, at the edge of Americanness. The begonia is too beautiful. We must love and be loved. Now that's, that's a love poem, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I want to talk about, I think that's the poem that... Um, my colleagues selected in a vote of three great poems to use for our broadside or poster and, and, and artist response that we're going to do. Um, so it, it's, um, it's been around. We're all familiar with it, and now our listeners are too. Can you talk about, then, this poem and maybe um, point to some moments or some thinking as you are writing it and reflecting on it after that you think about how a love poem and a political poem either are, are, are morph into each other or are hard to distinguish or disentangle? Well, f- well first of all, it, the title is called Sonnet Nice, so it's a hybrid form between a sonnet and a Chinese lyric, right? And I've been trying to write a perfect Shakespearean sonnet, and they, they're pretty bad. They sound like, you know, a so- Shakespearean sonnet in Elizabethan Chinglish. They sound really bad. So... <laughs> Most of my sonnets, like this one, are um, variations, sonnet and sonnet variations. And this one has an A rhyme, so it's a, a, a short vowel A rhyme. So it, that, you know, that reminds the reader that it's a sonnet. And also, of course, the turn in the end reminds the reader that, oh, yeah, we're hearing a traditional sonnet as foundation, but then there's multiple histories going on in the poem. And first, of course, is the formal history of the sonnet. Second is a personal history. Because um, I was teaching in Beijing, and I went to see uh, <laughs> Mao Zedong's body in the mausoleum. It, is, it was, I stood in line because I really, I really wanted to see it. So talking about uh, archives, I mean, there's, there was a lot of archival material. Of course, it was propaganda around uh, in the museum, and it was fascinating. Um, and, and I saw his body. 
I don't know if it's still there, but it was it was a, <laughs> a surreal experience. So there's that modernist uh, history, communist history in the poem, uh, and then of course there's there's the uh, imperial history in the in the poem, as well as personal history. I mean, it basically is about. Uh, a drunken boyfriend, right? It basically, that's what <laughs> it's, it's that autobiographical moment, that story, that personal history that makes the work fly, I think, the personal edge to the poem. And the Chinese poets have done this, um, especially the Tang and Sung dynasty poets. They, they use history as a vehicle to comment or criticize the present condition. And that's the only way they can do it without getting, you know, exiled or imprisoned. But, uh, but after a while, the, the emperors get the code, right? They, they crack the mm-hmm. code. And, uh, and Su Dong Po, who um, uh, I've uh, referenced here, um, his, his dates are 1037 to 1101. Um, he, he outlived three wives and and also he was exiled and you know imprisoned and yeah he was a high class bureaucrat uh, but he survived you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> ultimately he his wives you know he survived his wives even and one of his wi- wives uh, was a slave girl whom he purchased at the age of ten so there's a lot of backstory to the line the blacker the black coffee the more I want two cups. In the original, it's uh, the weaker the wine, the more I want two cups. Uh, he was, of course, a drinker, as as were all those Chinese poets of the Tang and, and the Song dynasties. When I was in in Beijing, I uh, I also saw the tombs of various empresses, and they had mummies, and and the jewels which, and and they displayed jewels which uh, were. F- which filled their tombs and also stuffed in their cavities. I, um, shocking, <laughs> shocking material. Um, so basically, it's 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 a poem that is that actually is, is an is an archival poem. I mean, it it's it's mm-hmm. got all this these artifacts in here. So I I, I can't extric, extricate myself from my ancestors and from history. So in the end. My dear, we are staring at the void at the edge of Americanness. I remind the reader that I am an American, an American uh, looking at her past, at, at her ancestral past, and, and we must love and be loved. I remind the reader that it is a love poem after all, you know, although it's kind of twisted and it's subversive, but... Uh, <laughs> So there we go. There's just this multiple histories in one poem. Does this make sense to you? Oh, yes, it does. And, I mean, when I read the selected, it was interesting to read all of it in one sitting because you're getting many years of poems and different approaches and different formal structures all at once. And um, I don't normally read a selected or a collected certainly all at once i don't think they're designed necessarily for it but i wanted to to see what that was like and that those are even though there's all these different approaches um and you try on a lot of forms and you have just straight lyrics as well um that kind of packed 
you know, sort of history, ancestry, and archive, it shows up all over the place in your poem. Well, can't, can't you tell that I was uh, into the library, that I was in the library a lot? It's, mm-hmm. It seems to me maybe that's my generation or... Uh, or maybe I was, you know, a poetry nerd and a library nerd. My, my undergraduate degree was in classical Chinese literature. Therefore, I had to sit in the Modi library and, and thumb through uh, the Kangxi dictionaries, these giant Chinese dictionaries. My Chinese was not good, and I don't know why I majored in classical Chinese poetry. I was just hmm. at one point obsessed in Tang Dynasty poetry, and and therefore I, you know, I. Uh, I started hibernating in, in, in the library, in various libraries in my youth. Um, can you tell when a poet is, uh, is, a, is like what they call chong, um, a, a library worm? Oh, uh, <laughs> can you yeah, tell? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, especially if, if, poem, if libraries start showing up in poems too. But I, it might be generational. I mean, I, I certainly spend, well, I spend a lot of work time in a library. I'm in a library at the moment in a recording studio. But beyond that, um, pre-pandemic, libraries remained important to me. But I know, of course, that we have so much access now online to right. repositories and archives. Um, you know, and it's it's something that comes up. I mean, I, um, you know, one of the Rose Library, our holdings are global. We have a lot of Southern material, certainly, but we have a lot of international material and, um the the interesting thing is we're always working to try to find ways to digitize and thus make accessible to people around the world these collections that are very unique. Um, but at the same time, I love the fact that some of it, it's just a, it's a colossal job and it takes a lot of time and thus people still have to come on site to look at the materials. And there's something, it's interesting to watch when I'm working in the reading room um, and my colleagues have commented on this, when you watch, you know, like, it seems to be generational in a way. Some people will sit with the materials and they'll read like the letters and they take notes by hand. And then some people come in and that's in this case, it's often because there are grad students who are hired by researchers who can't come to the rows, but they're just taking photographs and just get really working through a box of material very quickly. So that makes sense if they're hired by a researcher because they'll send that. But if it's a lot of times students will do it for their own research and I don't know where or when they're going to process that stuff. So I still love the idea of sitting down, holding a letter, and just reading it and, and responding in that moment. Yes, I remember uh, reading um, Sylvia Plath's letters at uh, at Smith, and just and and her drafts. And oh my gosh, they were um, I I felt her ghost. And then uh, the summer after that. Um, that episode, I, I went to Yado, an artist colony, and I and they gave me the Sylvia Plath studio, and I felt her ghosts all over, mm. and and then you know there were bees even around the studio, mm. and I just, mm. <laughs> and so there's just these connections in my life that that ha- that ha- have to do with archives, libraries. I was born in Hong Kong, but I came to the United States in 1962, and in 1963, was the Ke- Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, and I was, um, and that I never forgot that. I, I connected my coming to the, to the United States with, with the assassination of a great president, and I, 
And later I went to his archive, his library, the Kennedy Library, and and I, you know, uh, in in Massachusetts, in in Boston, and you know that library is very important to me. They're just um, these libraries that that stay stay with me, stay in my memory. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, this is the perfect show for you to be on. Then. <laughs> <laughs> for for a library um, nerd, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what we've had um, real luck in. Bringing, I think a lot of the people we feature on the show, because generally they're connected to the rows, either because they might be visiting or we have some papers of theirs connected or materials. Um, I think th- all of our guests have an appreciation of archives and libraries in that way. So I want to pivot just a tiny bit, but I think it's th- this. All, the questions that I have, I think, are all really interconnected to what you've been saying. Um, in that interview that I mentioned earlier that's online, um, which is great because it's a video, so you can actually see two people talking. Um, you said, quote, the self in my poems always represents something larger than myself, end quote. And you've already kind of spoken to this notion um, that you, and and I had put the, I had asked a question uh, here, do you imagine writing poems as a, some kind of act of ventriloquism that you're throwing your voice such as, such that it's embodied in other forms or ideas or objects? I want to maybe use that to ask the question, if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to uh, Chinese forms and English language forms a little more in depth. And maybe uh, I happen to know, having talked to you previously, that you studied with a great formalist American poet, Donald Justice, um, and you had mentioned that he had uh, left a deep impression on you. Um, I'm curious about your encounters with you know, different formal structures, Eastern and Western, and how, if, if over time, just how that sort of changed over your writing career um, in terms of how you think of form. The selected itself is, is a history of, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, how my work has transformed or, or not. Because I think, I think as I, I said, the self, um, even though I write, write and, I, you know, I begin with autobiography, what's happening to me in the here and now, uh, hanging around with a with a drunken boyfriend, let's say, but that always that almost always opens up to a, to larger issues, and and I think it's you know maybe because I you know um, I thought I I, I was a, a hippie in the seventies. I guess I guess I I I saw myself as a revolutionary poet for God's sakes. I don't know why, but. Uh, um, so, um, in that, um, yeah, the self off in the poem opens up to, to larger issues. Uh, one of the scholars in, um, named John Geary, I just, I just found his article recently, and he, he said that I was a, he called me a post-imagist poet. Hmm. And I don't know what that means. I think, I think maybe because I was, uh, I, I, um, uh, in my twenties, when I was a, a Chinese uh, major, a Chinese a classical Chinese literature major, I stared at those characters so hard, and I and I um, I, tra- I did a lot of translation that that the, that the images themselves are empowered um, by by uh, by history and and also by politics. And I don't know how 
that happened. So if you look at my images, I I use them, uh, they, I yeah, as, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I use them in a surreal and fantastic, but but often to uh, as uh, you know as entry toward uh, social critique. And so that I suppose that is the merging of East and West, the the power of images and how one uh, manipulates those images and opens them up to uh, to uh, larger issues and and how Donald Justice. You know, when I was at Iowa. I had selective mutism. I mean, it was weird. In 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 <laughs> in the workshops, I couldn't talk. I think I was twenty one or twenty two, and there were you know I don't know. You remember the workshop situation? Mm-hmm. Some people were older, and they were uh, really much more articulate, and uh, and also at at that time, a lot of people were reading. Uh, reading, um, you know, Derrida, and you know, and 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 they were equipped with, with with jargon, right? But the one-on-one discussions with Donald Justice were wonderful. He was able to articulate what I was doing on the page that I could that I couldn't articulate in class, and he was very generous to me. Uh, in one session, he noticed that I was, I was. Of writing in beats, and so, so then, <laughs> that I was counting beats and not syllables, and and that was interesting to me because um, I noticed that that a lot of translators translate uh, uh, Chinese poetry, and there's a flatness to to the poems. But but I I knew right away uh, as a uh, as a scholar, uh, you know, somewhat a Chinese scholar that. That the, there were rhymes, there were full rhymes, there were internal rhymes, there were parallel voicings, and and so forth that that were not translated in the English. So, so very young, I um, I was working with with you know all these aspects of poetry. It's really writing is about the the merging of form, you know, form and content, and there's so many ways to. To play, to play on the page, and I was, um, and I'm very lucky to have to have had that that uh, that early uh, training in Chinese aesthetics, and so I was able to make to create hybrid forms, and 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 in that informs my my quote unquote hybrid identity as a Chinese American poet. So, and maybe that's why some of these poems, like. Uh, Thirty years later, uh, they you know um, people still still appreciate them because they seem to have this uh, this you know agelessness this this uh, you know they they sort of live on you know um, despite a lot of the you know that they they deal with contemporary issues uh, but they they somehow they they have this ancient stability. <laughs> to the poems. Yeah, I I did notice in reading um the book in order that very thing. It's something I've remarked on actually was um to somebody that these early poems feel, you know, there are transformations or there's different moves you're making, I suppose, from early to later, but there's a liveliness and a voice that seems very from the early poems to the later poems, very similar 
and mm-hmm. and consistent. And I, it's um, a really great pleasure as a reader to encounter that. Now maybe we can move toward. I mean, we've been talking about archives, and I want to talk more specifically about your sense of personal archives and family archives. And I'm curious if, first of all, um, there is anything like a family archive that you've either moved around or uh, somebody else in your family has maintained, um, or is there an absence of an archive like that? We came here with with hardly anything. Um, um, my mother died uh, after my mother died in 2002 um, um, she just she, uh, she just left some photos and and a little jewelry and uh, and my my father was a gambler and and a bigamist oh I, we won't go there but <laughs> hmm. but but so um, he he has left you know nothing. So, but I just I also have let's say one of her Chinese jackets. She she only weighed eighty pounds. She was mm. tiny, but I, you know, but is that important for an archive? Like a Chinese jacket? I mean, I don't know what should be preserved or um, or my jeans in the my hippie jeans in the seventies are they? <laughs> important to an archive i don't i'm i'm not sure but i don't i don't have much of of that past it, talking you know i remember her she used to write you know uh aerograms you remember mm-hmm. uh, and and she would send them but i don't have any uh you know any vestiges of of those because she had sent them out and i uh, we don't have any of her letters, um, letters from her uh, from her relatives or anything like that. It's just it's all gone. Um, that's very sad, and I think that's mm-hmm. I, I think I preserve her her spirit in the poems, and and actually in my anger. I think that's where I <laughs> <laughs> that edge, that bad girl yeah. edge. I. I I just want to make things right for my mother, but, uh, you know, that's not to be, but, um, yes, I, I feel sad about, about that, about the miss the missing archive. Which is, I think, really common. I mean, um, in, and I'm assuming it's common in immigrant families when, especially, I mean, in my family immigrated and had nothing, brought nothing with them except each person, my brother, two sisters, mother and father carried a suitcase. And I'm certain I, when I look back on my family's archive, whatever that is, I mean, what that I have at least, it's pretty much just a few photos and almost all of it, aside from one photo book that I just found that my mother had sent me, obviously, sometime in the past 10 or so years, um, it's a, it's a album of, of photographs from her childhood in New Zealand. My family came from New Zealand. There, she has nothing else from that past. Um, although her mother, her father died. Well, both of them lived long enough. Her mother lived to be 89, left a few items behind, but that didn't come with them here. So similarly, there was very, there was really nothing except what was being built then over the next 40 years. So, um, 
it all resides up in the head, I suppose. Have you intentionally um, kept your own archive papers? And if it was, was it ever intentional? Like some writers, you hear stories that, you know, once they realized they were going to write at age 20, they meticulously kept everything because they knew the archive would be important. Um, and others, I have a friend who throws everything away, a writer who I really admire, um, and is like, I don't, she doesn't want to keep anything. So I'm just curious where you fall in that, and if, uh, and we can explore that. Oh, I, I'm not very organized, so that I, I have stuff in boxes, but you know how academics are, we move to academic poets, we move to the next job, right? But I lost a lot in the 1989 San Francisco um, earthquake. I, uh, I, I collected fish. I had fish tanks and in my apartment, and the fish tanks fell over all, you know, and all my bookshelves, and, and, wow. and the building was condemned. So I, I lost a lot of stuff. I was a Stegner fellow at that time, and then I... I moved to San Diego, and I had a, a bunch of stuff in my, my deceased boyfriend's garage. So, uh, hmm. which is, yeah, so that's a long story, and I, I can't retrieve those. Uh, no, I'm not organized. I don't throw everything away, but I just, I'm very haphazard about all this. I, I just, you know, sometimes I clean the house, sometimes I don't, and sometimes mm-hmm. I dump things into... Um, into a box uh, and 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 take it to the garage. I I was a um, a Radcliffe fellow uh, two thousand and four two thousand and five um, and that's the Radcliffe Institute at yeah, Harvard, right? Yes, yeah. the Radcliffe Institute uh, at Harvard. And I I had oh I had such a wonderful time with the, their libraries. I mean <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the Harvard Yanjing libraries. Uh, library, I found all kinds of inter- interesting documents. Uh, but in any case, a a young uh, archivist named Ken V. Phillips uh, asked, you know, if I would, if I would, uh, you know, uh, uh, offer my my uh, my papers to to the Radcliffe Institute, and I and I liked her, so I said yes. That's <laughs> it. Seems very haphazard. But I have not collected anything. I do not have, I, I am not organized. I don't know what, maybe when I see you, Nick, you can, you can give me ideas as to how to mm-hmm. uh, proceed with, uh, yeah, with this venture. But, but you know what? I don't want to think about it because I think, I think archives, what does that mean? It means I'm closer to death. I ain't dead <laughs> yet. I'm still writing poems. It's just—it's <laughs> kind of weird. So I don't want to think about it. But uh, but I suppose you know it's it's a privilege to to ha- you know to um, to have a place, and especially uh, at the Schlesinger Library, where uh, two you know many of my uh, well uh, Adrian Rich, Adrian Rich, and uh, who else is it's uh, um, Jane Jordan. Yeah, June Jordan. Yeah, those yep. are t- two important mentors. So there, there are others as well. But I, I feel that my, my papers will be in in good hands. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you. So 
your most recent book wasn't a selected. Um, so forgetting the new part of the new selected, did you, so when you were putting that together, did you refer back to, did you have old drafts? Did, were there, were there changes that you made? You know, I mean, I know, uh, you mentioned something about, um, Sonnet needs even having some changes from earlier drafts. So I'm curious, did you refer to early drafts or did you just look at the old books, you know, the printed books and make, and make changes from there? Yeah, I, um, for the selected, I just you, I just look back from my printed books, but but I do, I I have copies of old drafts, not very well organized, and I, and every time I write a poem, I I keep old drafts because I'm one of those poets who has to, to, to print out the damn thing and mm-hmm. write on the pages, <laughs> you know, and it's not, I I just can't seem to, to. Uh, to edit very, poems very well on, you know, uh, uh, on the computer. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. So I have a lot, you know, I have a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. And that part, <laughs> but, I think part of the, um, I mean, I don't know if we have younger listeners who, who are completely editing virtually and, and that's probably the case. Um, but we're both, um, products of different generations but both at the workshop and and certainly other programs where worksheets were printed out and you grabbed them and other people's poems you'd write on and then you just that's how you would edit I mean you wouldn't you might type a poem uh, there's no screen or even I would print out um, I just got used to that as a method so that makes a lot of sense and it creates lots of stacks of paper <laughs> Yes. Well, I I think I have enough stuff for um, yeah. <laughs> for my archive, <laughs> and other people can sort that out for for you yes. down the road. Um, they can come to San Diego. I'll, I'll you know we can you know we can drink uh, mojit- mojitos while <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> sorting through this stuff. <laughs> well, I wanted to um, maybe as we sort of move to. Um, end our conversation, which we'll pick back up in Atlanta when you visit in March. And as a reminder to listeners, um, Marilyn Chin will be reading at the Schwartz Auditorium as part of the Raymond Donowski Poetry Library Reading Series on March 13th at 3 p.m. If you are interested in um, under signing up for the stream, which it will be streamed live, or potentially uh, coming in person for limited in-person seating, please send an email query to rose.library at emory.edu. And you can address that to me. I, my name is Nick Twemlow, or you can just keep it general. It'll get forwarded to me either way. Um, I had asked you a question in advance, and then you have a poem. It's a response to this. So I was wondering, I wanted to know if you had a poem that speaks to archives in the way we've been talking about them and in the way I have talked to you previously about them, and it turns out you do. Um, can you um, tell us a little bit about how this poem came to be and then read it for us? Yeah, this, this poem is called Love Story, and you, you can find it uh, on poets.org, and uh, uh, it's, it's in my new book, uh, my upcoming <laughs> book called Sage. Sage, and when does Sage come out? Oh, I don't have a date yet, but it's okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but it 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 came, you know, it began as a translation 
project. Uh, you know, I, I I was looking through immigrant letters uh, from the Guangdong, pro, you know, from my ancestors who, you know, from my people who who are Cantonese, and and they wrote uh, letters uh, back and forth, uh, you know, uh, to the uh, the to Hong Kong and Guangdong and the Gua- and Guangdong province, and some of the. And I, I found some poems that were inscribed on the walls of Angel Island, and 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 those poems mm. was, were translated by, by various uh, historians and 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 writers, um, and the yeah and, you know Angel Island was the Ellis Island, of the of the West Coast, and 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 uh, between nineteen ten and nineteen forty they. They processed a lot of Chinese immigrants, uh, and also uh, I I collected uh, letters um, from from the chi- you know uh, an exhibit from uh, at at the San Francisco Chinatown Library, and also from the Asian American Archives at UC Berkeley. And I I was going to do this huge translation project of these letters, however, I lost. I lost a lot of my notes, you know, during that that wretched uh, earthquake in 1989 in San Francisco. So, so that's really sad. But, uh, however, I wrote a few poems in response to those um, letters, and this one is called "Love Story," um, in which I tell the whole story of this of this immigrant couple. Okay, it's called "Love Story." The airgram says come, the photos show bliss. Another felicitous union, a fresh beginning. He so handsome fat, she so new world slim. The envelopes are red, the writing vermeil. He'll get a good job, an iron rice bowl won't break. She's caught a princely man, a silent one like her father. Sister dyes pink eggs. Auntie boils cider knuckles. The great patriarch is happy, a bouncy grandson, a bundle of joy from a test tube in heaven. Thank you for your blessings, for your lucky lycee. A young nurse cares for her now in a small hospice near the sea. He's alone on Silicon Hill. That's where he's happy. Emails turn silent. Instagrams remiss. Thank you for the white gardenias. They'll sweeten her soul. The Joss paper boats will net fish for her in the next world. I compress these personal histories into, into one poem and compress this one one life, this one love story um, from marriage to to death um, in this one poem but but the images such as um, such die, dying pink eggs and cider knuckles those uh, that's that uh, after childbirth they would they would make these strange you know uh, you know, meaty stews for you know for for the mother for the uh, uh, for the mother to bring her back to health. 
So there, there are these items in here that perhaps, you know, I, I'm archiving these items in this home because mm-hmm. uh, I think even a contempt, you know, a, uh, a Chinese, um, Chinese living in Beijing today may not know about these, these past um, uh, rituals. So I was happy to find these, these, these little rituals in, in these letters. And um, yeah, so, so what do you think? This is a recent poem, Nick. You're, you're talking, mm-hmm. What's different? What's the poetic vector here? <laughs> yeah, I love the, um, the fact that it has an archival... I don't underpinning. I mean, very specifically, like we've been talking sort of more generally abstractly about an abstract archive. The living is an archive. History is an archive. Um, traditions can be archival, but this is actually coming from right. Actual letters that inform it. Even if you've, you're not quoting specifically anything uh, or not specific quotes, but clearly it's a, it's a compression. It has you differently, right? You're not as foregrounded in this. The eye isn't as foregrounded, right? Right, right. Yeah. Is it that de- something which, and it's a great story, you're right. It, it goes from marriage to death. It sort of spans, it's 15 lines, right? It's, it's tercets. It's fairly compressed, really. Um, and in the compressed kind of language that you are um, often employing. So is this, if, if, is this something that is indicative of other poems that are finding their way into this new collection right um it's strange this is this new collection is it is the pandemic collection right there are a lot there's some pandemic poems but some of them are, are, are funny because i was watching a lot of a lot of um comedy on tv for some reason <laughs> uh, well comics. we got to try to and, it's and hard to find some, happiness it's something about uh the way a joke is told and and the punchline so I was working on on these joke poems, and I don't know, this, you know this this new book is filled with different kinds of stuff, and um, yeah, I have a few poems that that came out of that that era uh, where I was collecting uh, immigrant letters, and and so this that's why this one's a little distant, and the the I is not. A first person pronoun, but a e y e the I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, observe, you know, uh, the eye of, of of an observer of history, uh, of an observer of this relationship, and perhaps uh, one of the, you know, the ones who are receiving these letters, these these emails, and and so forth. So, uh, yeah, uh, the yeah, it's. It's nice to not have <laughs> to keep harping at at my father and 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 boyfriends, you know. <laughs> but but this, I, I suppose, in this relationship, uh, this uh, you know this this couple does this this person who this uh, who who sort of you know uh, on Silicon Hill, mm-hmm. he's he's actually kind of typifies what happens in, in life that, you know, uh, but, but, um, yeah, yeah. And well, I mean, there's still definitely like a voice, it's voiced. I mean, those, the, the decision to, to say a young nurse cares for her now, there's a Caesarea sort of a space right in the line. And then you get in a small hospice near the sea 
So you're getting a, a, the pause, and then you rec- you recognize, okay, this is this is the death that's coming. And then the next line, you break back to he's alone on Silicon Hill. That's where he's happy with another scissor as some sort of break in the middle of that line, isolated, remote. You know, he's up on the tower or whatever it is, looking down at the sea in a sense. And so, um, and then there's something I think a little. Uh, um, a jab where you have thank you for the white gardenias they'll sweeten her soul the joss paper boats will net fish for in the next world it's both sweet and sour in its way right so you still have your voice there it's just not um the i the letter right. I, I that's inside that so that's how i see they still connect back to early poems for well, i guess i still have the edge nick <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i guess i can still be that miss andrew andrew whatever that word is that <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've been accused of being a man-hating feminist, but <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it all goes back to my father, and, and yeah, I guess I, one never grows out of that, that pain of childhood, that um, interesting, interesting, your, 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 your reading of this. Thank you, thank you. Well, yeah, no, it's great. It was great to get... Um, a new poem to include and to really that we can sort of end there on and think about um, you'll have to let us know if you make any decisions in the next, probably you won't in the next six weeks about the book, but we'll certainly keep our, we'll keep tabs on it. So we know when it's coming. Um, Well, I want to thank Marilyn Chin once again for joining us on community conversations. Um, And we are very much looking forward to your visit uh, to Atlanta and again I've provided information um, where if you're interested in streaming or attending please reach out to us and we will talk to you again in a month on the next episode of Community Conversations thank you thank you kisses hugs Community Conversations is produced by Lolita Rowe, Nick Twimlow, and Jacob Chisenhall, who also edits the show. Music by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Marilyn Chen and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. And follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media. And please, share with your friends. You can find Community Conversations on all your favorite podcast feeds. For more information on Marilyn Chin's reading, please visit rose.library.emory.edu. Join us next month as Clint Fluker, Rose Library's curator of African American collections, talks with Ganzir, an Egyptian-born artist who gained international recognition for a series of Cairo street murals in the wake of the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. Genzir is currently an artist in residence at Emory's Carlos Museum and created a mural that is part of the museum's current exhibition, And I Must Scream.